Hello, and welcome to Politics in a Movie with your hosts, Doug and Mike. I'm Doug. And I'm Mike. And this week's episode, No Smoking Laws and Aliens. I'd like to, Mike, as usual, thank the guy behind our scenes, our technician, Frenchie. He's a wizard at technology, or as he likes to call it, la technology. <laughs> oh, that was a good imitation of Frenchie. Uh, you like that? Yeah. All right. Thanks, well, Frenchie. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, Mike, why don't we delve into your topic of the day? No sure. Smoking laws. Sure. No smoking laws. So uh, originally, when we were thinking about this as a topic to discuss, we were thinking about the laws that have been passed that ban smoking in indoor places and restaurants and bars. If you're old enough, you remember the days when there was no regulation of that and you'd go to the restaurant and it'd be polluted with smoke. Uh, and then they tried to do smoking areas and that didn't work because the smoking, the smoke filtered back into the non-smoking area. Right. Um, and we also remember the laws that started to get passed. And there was some states that still had no restrictions and other states that did. I remember I was in travel once in Kansas and it was long past everybody else passing their laws. And I walked into a Chili's. I got my baby back reels. And it was filled with smoke. Yeah. And I said to the hostess, uh, oh, there's no, there's, you smoke in here, you know? And, and she said, yeah. And she said, I can find you a seat that's close to the, I don't know what she said, but I was like, thought about it for a minute and said, I oh, know I'm getting out of here. And I went back to my hotel and ordered pizza or something. You know? Yeah, right. But anyway, I, I, I know that it, there was a time where it was very mishmash. And, and today, 35 states have uh, no smoking in restaurants. And right. that's, that's a lot. That is uh, a lot. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I remember here in Ohio where I live, it was a ballot question in 2006. Um, and it passed by 58%, which is a pretty big majority right. that folks felt that uh, there shouldn't be smoking in restaurants. And a big reason for that is findings that secondhand smoke really affects people. And it oh, wasn't yeah. so much a, you know, my choice decision, like, hey, if I want to smoke, let me smoke. If you don't want to smoke, you don't have to. No, it was like, if you smoke, everybody's smoking. If you smoke right. in, a, in a room. Everybody in that room is smoking. If you smoke in a car, everyone's smoking. Have you ever thought of what happens when you smoke a cigarette? And I remember hanging my coat, like after going out to the bars, you know, in my 20s, going out and, and uh, hanging my coat, like outside to mm -hmm. air out because it stunk of smoke. Yeah. Well, so, you know, both both my parents were heavy smokers. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. I remember uh, my dad did your take to kid take your kid to work day. Yeah. And his office, he was a businessman, and yeah. in his office, he had a huge ashtray. It was like as big as like a casserole right. dish, you know? <laughs> right. And it was filled with cigarette butts. If you took all the cigarettes in the world and laid them end to end, you would never have time to smoke a single one. Yeah. And, you know, at home, my parents would both be smoking and I would uh, I would be coughing and waving my hand like to get the smoke out of my face sometimes. <laughs> and they would laugh at me and say, you're just making that up. Yeah. You're just making up coughing. <laughs> well, at, at my company, we celebrated 
a few years ago, we celebrated, like, let's say, I think it was our 75th anniversary as a company. And they gave away a gift to everybody. I think we got like a little car that said the name of the company. It was an insurance company. And they were sending, you know, an email around about the history of the company, which started in 1937. They showed the other gifts and other milestones. One year they gave everybody an ashtray. Yeah, that's crazy. Here's here's the ashtray with the company name on it. Like, oh, great. I need an ashtray. (laughs) Nobody uses ashtrays anymore. You know, right. So, but, you know, as, as I was looking into this discussion, you know, it really goes back a long time where tobacco is a new world agricultural product that it didn't grow in the rest of the world. It mm. was brought here when the colonies started mm. and the colonists capitalized on that and brought tobacco back to Europe. Now I think there's more smoking probably in Europe or other places in the world than there are, than there is in America. So, you know, Frenchie's chiming in, uh, uh, you know, he's upset that there's no smoking bans in, uh, you know, in <laughs> France, you know, he, he rolls his own cigarettes and, uh, has to smoke outdoors. Poor guy. Sorry, Frenchie. Oh. Well, you know, as Frenchie likes to say, Mike, say la vie. <laughs> he does say that. Yeah. So, you know, I think a big change though happened. There was always debate, not always, but there was debate over the years about, Hey, is this good for you? Is this not, is this not good for you? And there were the people who say, Hey, if I want to smoke, I can. It's my life. But things changed. Really, a big change happened in 1964 when the Surgeon General, and you remember that, like that would be an ad. The Surgeon General recommends not smoking. Right. 100,000 doctors have quit smoking cigarettes. You can too. That came out in 1964, and this, I, it's so funny how debates of the past echo. Again, you know, the, the famous line, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yeah. And so I think about the COVID experience recently where people were getting angry at the, you know, at the government who was saying, hey, COVID, you know, wear a mask. Right. And I don't have to wear a mask. And you don't. But, um, you know, I, the, the smoking thing, I thought it, it sort yeah. of is a, is a illustration of that famous line, you know, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's true. It's uh, history is the kind of thing where just, I mean, in all, in so many cases, people just have to be dragged, kicking and screaming, you know, yeah. into, into what inevitably is the next thing that should and is gonna happen. Hear that, Mister Anderson? That is the sound of inevitability. And you know, I live in California, and you know, our state was the, I think, the first state to the really. First state. They were to really push this non no smoking in restaurants. And I remember a lot of restaurant owners and bar owners, you know, they, they, they were upset about it because they thought they'd lose customers. Right. And of course it turns out that, you know, people still go to bars (laughs) regardless of whether they have to smoke outside or not. So they didn't really lose customers and they found an additional benefit of their cleaning costs were dramatically reduced. Yeah. You know, they didn't have to clean their vents as much. There was no, you know, stains on the ceiling from all the smoke. They didn't have to deal with, you know, butts and all that other stuff. So yeah. they actually had a really big benefit in the end. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I just think, you know, it started with government agency saying, hey, you know what? After all this debate, guess what? Smoking is bad for you and it is killing people. And that, right. that was the truth. And I think the public also saw that. I, I had it in my family. 
I, I remember family parties where we'd go and it would be full of smoke. The room would be full of smoke. It wasn't just the government saying, hey, you know what? Smoking kills people. It was, we personally saw it happen in our lives. Right. Jeez, you smoke too? I found it interesting, you know, being in California, I got used to there being no smoking in restaurants yeah. and, and bars. And then I remember I took a trip to the East Coast, New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, if I had to think of a place on the East Coast, that would be, you know, the opposite of California. It'd probably be New Jersey. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, so I, I go into a bar in New Jersey and a girl came up to me and she said, uh, do you have a match? Yeah. And in my head, I thought to myself, why is she asking me for a match? Oh, maybe they're celebrating a birthday and they need to light some candles. <laughs> Like, yeah. That's what I thought. And I said to her, maybe she's an arsonist. Uh, I just, I had no <laughs> idea why she was asking me for a match. And then, um, you know, I said no. And then I saw that she, you know, got a match from someone and lit a cigarette. And I was like, oh, right. People still smoke. Yeah. I still get in Ubers and they don't, they're not smoking in the Uber, but the upholstery is like stinking of cigarette smoke. Oh, still. You know? Yeah. Because they probably, every time they don't have a customer in the car, they're smoking, you know? Ah, yes, yes. Yeah. So I, I just think we're, you know, it's it's interesting how you we look at public policy issues and how, again, they don't, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes, but they match. And I look at this issue of smoking and it touches on public health, it touches on labor because people in workplaces who were inhaling secondhand smoke were being affected. It affected liability. I think people were suing their employers because mm -hmm. they were getting diseases because of inhaling secondhand smoke. And, you know, I think that there was, it was touching on all these issues. And, and I think we see this happen again and again, you know, with the environment and with workplaces. The smoking issue is kind of a microcosm of everything else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting to think how uh, pervasive smoking was across so many things, yeah. as you say, Mike. Um, you know, remember, they used to be able to smoke in airplanes. I know. And they used to have lights that would pop up that would, you know, say no smoking because you'd had to stop smoking sometimes. And ashtrays on your armrests. Yeah, they had ashtrays in there. And and they did have no, no smoking sections in the airplane, but, Which you know, it's ridiculous. like- you know, there wasn't a, a gap, really. You know, it's yeah. like the guy behind you was in smoking. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is it worth noting um, how long it took, maybe, for these no smoking laws to creep well, across the country? It is interesting how long it did take. And as I said, smoke or tobacco was here in the Americas for thousands of years, and it was the indigenous people who smoked. And then the Europeans came and they brought it back to Europe and it spread worldwide. I think that um, it, it really jumped in the 20th century with industrialization. And the Duke family, who Duke University is named after, he was famous, James Duke, I think his name was, for really increasing the speed with which they could make cigarettes. He, I don't know if they invented the cigarette. His company was called like the American Tobacco Company or something. Right. And that made smoking, because it was so cheap to make and to distribute, it just jumped, especially after the war, uh, after World War II, people came back. I also understand that during the war, the tobacco companies would give free cigarettes to the uh, military. 
mm. that they would give out. And that was another way they, you know, hooked us, <laughs> mm. you know, I think it was the sixties or the seventies. That was like 4,000 people per capita per year smoked or something. It was just some, some incredible number. And it was just, you know, sort of just after that Surgeon General report came out was when it peaked. And then it just sort of went down. I mean, you and I grew up knowing that smoking was bad. And I think a lot of kids influenced their parents. Yeah, I, I tried to influence them by faking coughing. Let's see, I don't know how much that worked. <laughs> All right. Well, Mike, thank you for cutting through the haze of that topic. <laughs> Why don't we move on to our movie topic? Uh, okay. The movie that we chose is Aliens. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting to note that it's not Alien 2. They just put a an S at the end. Yeah. You know, which I like. I like that it's Aliens, because the first movie um, literally had the one alien that they had to deal with. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And it was a handful. Oh. And so the next, you know, the sequel has a lot more aliens. Yeah. Now, you might think that we would have chosen a different movie uh, based on our political topic, something like the movie Thank You for Smoking. Uh, (laughs) But that's a bit too obvious for our tastes. We like to have a little bit of nuance. You know what word I'm not comfortable with? Nuance. So Aliens came out in 1986. Uh, The first film, Mike, was 1979. Wow, that's a long time ago. Yeah. Oh, it is. And it was directed by uh, Ridley Scott, the first film. So Mike, what, Mike, what do you remember about the first movie alien? Well, it was so long ago, but I remember the alien burst out of her chest or something. Didn't she? That's right. Yep. Yeah. And that, that scene, uh, was, you know, the big shocker of the, of the movie. Yeah. In fact, the cast when they were filming that scene, they weren't told what was going to happen. Oh. And so when you rewatch that scene, Mike, uh, from Alien, where the alien bursts out of that guy's chest and blood spurts everywhere, yeah. uh, the camera shows one of the, uh, you know, uh, one of the crew people, a woman, they show her getting blood splashed on her and she's screaming. And that <laughs> is real. Wow. Yeah. Ridley Scott, he wanted it to be a surprise. He wanted to capture real uh responses and he got exactly yeah. what, exactly what he wanted hmm. interesting this sequel was directed by james cameron hmm. and it was his first big studio film wow uh you know he was known uh prior to this uh for the terminator yep um but the terminator was you know sort of a dark horse film it came out of nowhere uh, it was a small studio um, and it, you know, became very popular. Uh, but this was James Cameron's first big studio film. Uh, he wrote it. He wrote the screenplay actually for Aliens, and he uh, and he wrote Terminator. So he he really is, you know, a director, screenwriter, you know, writer and director, true writer and director. Yeah. And Aliens, you like to uh, you like to ask about the uh, the Oscar, the Academy Awards. They received two awards: best sound effects and Best Visual Effects. Both of those awards were well-deserved. Sigourney Weaver, as you know, from the first film, came again into this uh, sequel. My friend Howie dated a girl that looked like her. <laughs> <laughs> and she, for this sequel, she was nominated for Best Actress. 
And actually, that's the first time the Best Actress Award, uh, they had a nomination for a science fiction film. Wow. Her first real big film role was Alien. And she had since gone on to be in something like over 60 films. Ghostbusters is another one she's really well known for. And she did that one two years before Aliens. Oh. And so in, uh, and so in Alien and Aliens, she plays a character called Ripley. And a lot of yes. people might think that this was really uh, Sigourney Weaver was arguably uh, the first female action hero. Yeah. Her female role went against all previous stereotypes, really, for female characters. And, uh, and the role <laughs> the, the role in the screenplay was originally written with a man in mind. Um, but when they actually decided to have it be uh, you know, Ripley, the script didn't really change. They just kept, you know, the scenes the same. So yeah, ironically, it was written for a man, but a woman stepped smoothly into the role and, and did fantastic. Recently, Jennifer Lawrence was interviewed and she had a quote that got out there, Mike, where she said, nobody has ever put a woman in the lead of an action movie before she played Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games. <laughs> Thank you for your consideration. And she later corrected it. She didn't really yeah. mean it that way. But obviously Sigourney Weaver wa, mm -hmm. you know, had that woman in lead of an action movie. And but also, you know, Linda Hamilton, uh, Michelle Yeoh, Uma Thurman, Pam Greer, et cetera. Yeah. You know, but I would argue that Sigourney Weaver really rocketed that concept of the female action hero into space, as it were. <laughs> to infinity and beyond. She was kind of badass from the start of the film. You know, they, they, they pull her into a corporate board meeting and gives her a bunch of grief as to, you know, why did she have to destroy the ship? And she just pushes back on him. And it's, you know, it's a great scene. Thank you. That will be all. God damn it. That's not all. Because if one of those things gets down here, then that will be all. Then all this, this bullshit that you think is so important, you can just kiss all that goodbye. They're not convinced because, you know, they're corporate suits, Mike. <laughs> Here's the connection to our topic, uh, that corporate boardroom, they're all yeah. smoking uh -huh. and they all have ashtrays, you know, so they're sitting <laughs> around this big corporate table and eating, they all have pads and pens and drinks mm -hmm. and ashtrays. And in the movie, it's supposed to be the year 2179. I can guarantee you nobody has an ashtray in 2179, Mike. <laughs> yeah. So, Mike, you know, I like to talk about the uh, the cast in these things. Um, Michael Bean, who plays uh, Hicks, mm -hmm. uh, he got pulled into the movie after the guy who was supposed to play Colonel Hicks got uh, busted for drug possession and kicked out of the UK. Oh. Drugs are bad. Okay. And they filmed Aliens in the UK. Oh. Later on, that guy who uh, got kicked out. He, uh, he's the actor who went on to play, uh, Dexter's dad in the TV show Dexter. Oh, so, you know, he did okay for himself. Um, yeah. you know, later on, he said that that was a wake up call for him in his career. And if it wasn't for him getting busted and kicked, kicked out of the UK, uh, he doesn't know if he'd ever had, uh, go, would have gone sober. Well, good for him. Yeah. And Michael Bean was, uh, previously he was in, uh, the Terminator. Mm-hmm. And he plays one of the head Marines. And so Ripley, early in the film, she's accompanying these Marines. And she's just a consultant because she's seen the aliens before. 
Yes. And the Marines are all real cocky and they're played. The whole squad is just played great. The actors uh, do a great job. I love how when they arrive at the planet, you know, they have to come out of these deep sleep pods because it takes a long time travel in space. And the head Marine already has a cigar ready. As soon as the pod pops open and he wakes up, he's got a cigar in his chest that he puts in his mouth and lights up immediately. All right, sweethearts, what are you waiting for? Breakfast in bed? Another glorious day in the core. Hey, tying to the previous discussion again there. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, the lead lieutenant Marine, like he's inexperienced and inept and, and his whole squad hates him. So there's lots of interaction on that. The Marines themselves are very well fleshed out. Nice details, you know, for each of them. But one of the things I love is when they're traveling down to the planet on a shuttle, uh, you know, they're all in there getting psyched up and uh, and they're hitting severe tur- turbulence. So they're all buckled in and a bunch of them are getting, uh, you know, airsick. And then the camera pans over to, you know, Michael Bean's character, uh, Colonel Hicks, and he's sleeping. <laughs> Somebody wake up, Hicks. Just little things like that uh, really build the, um, the ambiance of the film, which I love. Now, Mike, you know, uh, I mentioned that the film was uh, filmed in the UK. Sure. And it was filmed at Pinewood Studios in England, which uh, previously was known for the James Bond movies. And one of the things I love about a movie like this is they really build elaborate sets. There's no CGI at the time. There's no computer generated. Yeah. Yeah. They're building substantial sets, which... I always love to see in these older films like James Bond and and some of the early Star Wars movies. Yeah. You know, they actually would build a real-sized Millennium Falcon, you know? Yeah. Uh, And they don't really do a lot of that these days. They'll build like maybe a doorway or something or, you know, Mm -hmm. just like a very small piece of it and then they'll just use computer graphics to you know flesh in the rest but back in the 80s these films they they really put in the effort Um, right and i think james cameron started out as a set designer um, before he became a director so he has a great eye for that right they're building shuttle ships they're building the marines battle truck they're building uh, even the weapons you know they're building those from scratch they're not they're not just using like you know AK-47s or whatever, like they're, you know, they're making weapons that look futuristic. Yeah. And one of the machines they built, which I love, is the power lifter. So Ripley, uh, she's in the the space dock. And while they're loading large, heavy pieces of equipment, they use this kind of large exoskeleton that she steps into, which is a big machine that, you know, has large mechanical arms to lift up heavy items. And she's moving around in it, and it really looks very realistic. Mm. Uh, and a lot of people, when they saw the film, thought it was it was real. But they they built it out of lightweight materials, and the thing was operated like as a marionette. You know, they had like three people controlling the movement of it while Sigourney Weaver uh, was strapped into it. Wow! But but the effect comes off superbly. But a lot of people who watch it today think that it's CGI. I'll tell you something. Um, as far as CGI has come, there's very little CGI, which is so seamless that your brain can't immediately tell. But when you watch these these movies, you absolutely can tell that the things you know were built, including the 
queen alien. So in the film, aliens, you know, there's a bunch of these aliens who are running around killing folks, causing a ruckus, right? Yeah. Spearheaded by the queen. So kind of like in an antive, like, you know, there's a queen. Sure. Or a beehive. Yeah. Oh yeah. There you go. Beehive. <laughs> and and she's the queen, queen alien. Uh, so she's, I don't know, four times the size of the other aliens, right? <laughs> and in the end, uh, Ripley has a big showdown with the queen. They have a big battle. And the queen alien, uh, again, it's not CGI. So it's completely constructed as a costume. And there's two guys in it controlling the main movement of that queen. And then there's four guys outside the pic- outside the frame controlling it with, you know, wires and, and such. Wow. So it was a very tricky thing to do. And they pulled it off fantastically. Um, Aren't the humans the actual alien? If we're on their planet. Wow, that's a good question. So uh, turns out that that planet was a desolated planet and even the aliens were not indigenous. Okay. Wow, you had you had that answer ready. Oh, yeah, I do my research. <laughs> Ma'am, I already said that it was not indigenous. It was a derelict spacecraft. It was an alien ship. It was not from there. Here at Politics and a Movie, Mike, we like to do our research. <laughs> uh, another thing that I like is the Marines. They all have these advanced weapons, right? And uh, But they also all have head cams and bio readings that display on the control screen. So when they go into action... The lieutenant is back in his uh, in his in the battle truck, and he's got you know ten screens there with bio readings and seeing live cam footage. It's all very technologically cool, especially for back then. So as these Marines were training for the film, they had uh, they had a guy who was like a real soldier showing them how to hold guns and all that stuff, right? Right. And it's interesting, Sigourney Weaver when she was in Ghostbusters became friends with Rick Moranis, who was in that film, right? Yeah. And while she's filming Aliens, he's filming Little Shop of Horrors uh-huh. in, uh, you know, at Pinewood Studios in, in, a, in, a, in you know, like a uh, warehouse right next door, right? Interesting. And they would get together and they would, you know, like for lunch. And they would both sort of talk about how funny it is that they're both acting opposite puppets in these movies. <laughs> Basically, yeah. large puppets. And then I read somewhere that uh, while this guy was training the Marine actors, uh, Mm -hmm. he had a real gun and accidentally fired off a round that went through the wall and went through the little set of horrors uh, set. (laughs) Yikes. Yeah. Like it hit, you know, one of the things in their set and Rick Moranis was like, what the hell? All right. As far as other actors, Paul Reiser is in the movie. Interesting. Uh, six years later, he became very well known in his big success in TV's Mad About You. Right. Uh, in Aliens, he was relatively unknown. He started out as a comedian in his career. So this is his first real big yeah. film role. Yeah. Interestingly, he's ranked 77th on Comedy Central's list of 100 greatest stand-ups. Wow. That ranking was back in 2004. That's probably why he quotes it. <laughs> One of the things... I noted about Paul Reiser's character, he uses Spanish slang a lot when he's talking about things, you know, like he's telling Ripley, uh, listen, come with us back to the planet. You're not going to be in trouble because these Marines, 
They're tough hombres. These colonial marines are very tough hombres. And then later in the movie, he says, uh, hey, you got to be careful going in there because if you hit the reactor, it's adios muchachos. <laughs> talking about a thermonuclear explosion and adios muchachos. Now, I will tell you, uh, Mike, my favorite performance. Well, I mean, listen, Sigourney Weaver, she's got to be the favorite. But outside of that was Bill Paxton. Oh, yeah. Uh, he played Private Hudson. Mm -hmm. Before this, he was in a movie called Weird Science, <laughs> where he played like the older brother of one of the characters, military, right. a military-like yep. older brother, Chet. Yep. He was also in Terminator. Oh. But in Aliens, he's the comic uh, relief. Huh. Uh, and through the whole film, he's complaining. He complains the whole time, like right from the very start, you know, like the the colonel says, any questions? And he raises his hand. He's like, how, do, how can I get out of here? <laughs> but he's also, in the beginning, he's also bragging. Hey, Ripley, don't worry. Me and my squad of ultimate badasses will protect you. There's a scene where he's bragging to Ripley and he's saying, uh, you know, this is this is before she's really showing any badassness. <laughs> uh, she's just the consultant. Paxton is like, listen, don't worry, Ripley. We got your back. We got plasma rifles, auto-targeting laser clusters. We got nukes. We got knives, sharp sticks. <laughs> We got nukes, we got knives, sharp sticks. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then, of course, as the film goes on, right, he moves away from bragging about how awesome the Marines are to just panicking, like full-on panic. And some mm -hmm. of his best lines are like, he's just shouting, you know, we're effed, man, game over. <laughs> <laughs> and Ripley's got to calm him down and say, get it together and order him around. We're some real pretty shit now, man. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. What the fuck are we going to do now? What are we going to do? You know, his his performance is uh, fantastic. One of the lines I love that he says is, uh, you know, in the, in the final scenes of the movie, they need somebody to go out into, like, the danger to get the communications back up. And Paxton says, no way, man. I'm not going out there with those things. And so another person uh, volunteers. And... And Paxton says, yeah, yeah, Bishop can go. That's a good idea. Yeah, right, man. Bishop should go. Good idea. And what happens to Bishop? Yeah, Bishop doesn't uh, end up too well. <laughs> yeah, and then Bill Paxton, uh, you know, unfortunately, he passed away young. I know. Passed away a couple of years ago, five, six years ago, uh, age 61. One of the cast of the film said that they were talking to him they were talking to him prior and they said the last words he said to them was uh, game over, man, which is poignant. Yeah. Well, Mike, I think for our movie segment, that's our game over. Okay. So for all of us here at politics and a movie, thank you for listening. And you can check out our website at politics and Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Doug. And Thank you, Frenchie. Thanks, Frenchie. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo, signing off.